Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Joseph Helwig. I'm the uh, co-chair of the African Religions Group. My uh, partner, co-chair, Mary Nyangweso, is uh, right there, coming down the aisle. Thank you for coming today to the roundtable, Ebola, Africa, and Beyond, an epidemic <clears throat> in religious and public health perspectives. We're here to reflect this afternoon on how the recent Ebola epidemic in West Africa gives insight into the region's religious, social, and political dynamics, and in turn, how public health perspectives can give us new perspectives on West African religion, politics, and society. We're also here to think about what the epidemic's repercussions beyond Africa have to say about the relationship between religion and public health. First of all, though, I want to announce that two of our participants, Bishop John T. Yambasu of Freetown, Sierra Leone, and Jacob Olupuna of Harvard University were unable to join us. Bishop Yambasu was detained by a meeting of churches in his diocese in Sierra Leone, and Professor Olupuna is on leave this semester. I also want to thank Robert Puckett and the program committee for allowing the African Religions Group and the African Association for the Study of Religions to co-sponsor this session. It's uh, an attempt uh, for our two groups to collaborate more closely. And in spite of the fact that we are a rather intimate crowd in a very large hall, it's still significant um, to us that we're gathered here. I'm also grateful to Robert Hahn and the staff at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for putting me in touch with uh, Dr. Santibanez who is one of our participants uh, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and to all our participants for agreeing to contribute to this important and timely discussion, especially in light of the new uh, Ebola cases recently that have come to note recently in Liberia. I want now to introduce briefly for about five minutes this roundtable by commenting on its place, roundtable's place, and place of public health, perhaps, in the academic study of religion. In 1999, communications scholar Paula Treichler observed in her book about HIV and AIDS, How to Have Theory and an Epidemic, that epidemics inevitably highlight the inequalities and prejudices of the time and place in which they emerge. W.E.B. Du Bois made the same point in his classic 1899 study, The Philadelphia Negro, where he described how the location of African-American neighborhoods and the most precarious areas of the city made their populations particularly vulnerable to illness. In West Africa, the Ebola epidemic has challenged the already inadequate medical infrastructures of the region's most severely affected countries, namely Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Eight cases also appeared in Nigeria. Dynamics of race and wealth have determined in large part who could escape the affected areas, with Westerners leaving for treatment at home, while most Africans remain. Beyond West Africa, the epidemic was also racialized and spatialized. For example, one American university published the following statement about Ebola in October of 2014. I'll quote from the statement. It is important to emphasize that travel to an affected West African nation, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, within the last 21 days and or direct exposure to someone who has traveled to one of these nations within the last 21 days is a key factor in determining your risk of contracting the Ebola virus. X university does not operate any academic programs in the affected countries, nor does X currently have international students from the affected countries on its campus." End quote. Two things struck me about this statement when I read it. First, no university should be so proud not to have academic programs in West Africa. Second, there was, to my mind, no reason to implicitly single out international students from the affected countries as potential carriers of the virus. 
of the, as I recall, four persons who arrived in the United States with the virus, three were American citizens. Only one was of African origin. Yet X University's statement never assured readers that it had no U.S. students on its campus. Paula Treichler's point was precisely that illness is a social phenomenon, reflective of dynamics broader than the biomedical alone. Given the ability of religion scholars to analyze symbolic discourses and categories, we can both contribute, uh, we, public health uh, professionals and religious scholars, can contribute a, a great deal to and learn a great deal from uh, the discourse of public health in this regard, particularly given the broad definition of religion that religion scholars now use. From Loiba's 50 different definitions, all of which are good, as cited by Jay-Z Smith, to Bruce Lincoln's understanding of myth as, quote, ideology in narrative form, to Catherine Bell's notion of ritualization, which considers any socially marked practice of setting apart, like quarantining, a sign of purity or impurity, as per Mary Douglas. In Bruce Lincoln's terms, X University's statement was, at least in part, a racialized and spatialized myth, no matter how well-intentioned. It set apart, in Bell's terms, certain persons as polluting, as per Douglas, in contrast to others. Such myths are not without empirical correlates, however, namely the social conditions of racism from which they emerge. Similarly, in West Africa, conspiracy theories developed, claiming, for instance, that Westerners had brought the virus to the region or that the virus was a hoax. While these theories were scientifically false, they possessed a certain mythical truth. Myths about the Western origins of Ebola suggest that more than a virus is at stake in the epidemic, which is undeniably true. The socioeconomic conditions that contribute to ill health also play a key role in the spread of disease as per Du Bois's insight. Likewise, ideas about the epidemic being a hoax suggest, by extension, and here's the important part, that international and medical attempts to treat such epidemics rarely leave national medical infrastructures or public health conditions much improved for the arrival of the next epidemic. To that extent, so-called conspiracy theories are symbolic discourses you might read them broadly as religious, that offer the grounds for a critique of public health conditions. Religious studies can bring such insights to light, but only in response to a clear understanding of the cultural, epidemiological, and socioeconomic conditions in which the virus spreads. So for a discussion of these conditions, we now turn to our panel, and I'll introduce each speaker in turn. Our first speaker is uh, Dr. Scott Santibanez, He's Associate Director for Science in the Division of Preparedness and Emerging Infections at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, as well as Adjunct Associate Professor at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. As an infectious disease physician, he has devoted his career to pursuing social justice in medical contexts, particularly among the homeless and persons living with HIV and AIDS in collaboration with faith-based organizations. Dr. Ibanez. Okay, well, thank you, Joseph, and uh, I'd like to thank all of you for giving me the opportunity to come and uh, speak with you this afternoon. Uh, so I've been asked to share CDC's perspectives on the West African Ebola response, and um, as I was putting together my slides for this talk, 
um, I started to think back to where we were about a year ago when we were at the height of uh, transmission. And uh, if you remember, uh, it was about a year ago when a gentleman traveled from Liberia uh, to uh, Dallas, Texas. And uh, you remember in the news, he, you know, it was a, a tragic case where he, he went to an emergency room, he was sent home and uh, came back and was critically ill, uh, hospitalized, and subsequently, unfortunately, he, he died from uh, the disease, uh, infected two nurses who uh, were able to, to recover. And as part of that uh, effort in Dallas, um, CDC sent me to Dallas to work with the community there. And uh, as I was traveling to Dallas, I was thinking, well, I, you know, I want to get in the mindset of, of what this community is thinking, what questions they have, that type of thing. And so I started thinking, well, what if, uh, what if a, a traveler from West Africa, you know, uh, came to my community, my neighborhood, Atlanta, as you know, is a very international city, uh, could easily uh, have someone uh, close by um, uh, infected and in my area, so what kind of questions would, would uh, we be asking? And I think people would want to know, um, you know, what, what do we know about this infection? Uh, can we believe what we're hearing in the media? Uh, is it safe to send my kids to school? Is it safe to go to the store or go to worship services or the usual things that I do? And I think these are, these are reasonable questions. So I, I've tried to uh, answer those questions when I give talks, and I, hopefully I can answer some of these questions uh, today as well. Um, the West African Ebola outbreak has been the largest Ebola uh, epidemic uh, in history, and uh, it's also the largest uh, outbreak response in CDC's history, or, or one of the largest. Um, many, uh, many people and groups have been part of this uh, response. Uh, certainly our, our colleagues in uh, West Africa, um, many uh, humanitarian organizations such as our colleagues at MSF, faith-based organizations, uh, um, international organizations, uh, military has been part of this, but certainly CDC has been a part of this, and it has been a big part of our, our history. Uh, we've known about the virus that causes Ebola for about 40 years now. So um, we started seeing outbreaks with this virus in the mid-1970s, and what would happen... Um, uh, there would be an outbreak in, in a village. Uh, perhaps the virus would, would emerge from, from an animal uh, population and would infect people in a small village and had a very high death rate. So uh, at the time, 90% of the people uh, who became infected would die from this illness. And so uh, by the time uh, authorities were notified and scientists, physicians came in to investigate, uh, you know, whole villages would be decimated and, and wiped out by the time uh, anyone got there. So uh, um, because of that, it didn't spread beyond these small outbreaks at that time. Um, and um, from investigations of those outbreaks, uh, we were able to, to study the virus, understand what kind of virus it is, understand the way that it is uh, transmitted from person to person. So we had some basic uh, knowledge about this virus already when this particular epidemic uh, started. So what happens um, when a person is uh, exposed and infected to the virus, uh, usually within about a week to 10 days after exposure, uh, they'll start getting sick. And so that range is anywhere from 2 to 21 days. So if they're, they're exposed to an infected person, get infected, uh, within 2 to 21 days, they'll start to have a fever and feel sick and so forth. And that 21 days is very important for our control efforts because uh, you can monitor someone who's potentially exposed and um, 
if they're going to get a fever, if they're going to get Ebola, you'll start to see it in those 21 days. And if they go through that period and they're not getting sick, then they don't have Ebola. And that's a key part of our, our response. When someone does get sick, uh, initially the, the symptoms are very general, uh, fever, chills, muscle aches, weakness, uh, a kind of thing that you'd see with, with a lot of different uh, uh, diseases uh, that you might see in West Africa, like malaria and, and that type of thing. And uh, as the disease progresses, they begin to have more gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, uh, will begin to have bleeding. And uh, what our colleagues at uh, Emory University Hospital uh, have told us when they, as they've cared for these patients, you know, um, people sick with Ebola can lose 5 to 10 liters of fluid a day, which is a huge amount of infectious material. So you can imagine it would be very easy for someone caring for a sick individual to potentially um, uh, get the bodily fluids on their hand or gloves or something and potentially transmit it to someone else or become infected because of that large uh, volume of fluids. It's also difficult because uh, the, the initial symptoms, as I said, are very general, could be confused with malaria or some other type of infection uh, early on. So um, as I mentioned, the virus is, is present in very high quantity in, in blood and, and bodily fluids. And so what happens is uh, someone caring for a sick individual will uh, get the, the virus-contaminated fluid uh, perhaps on their hands. They might have a small break in their skin. It might even be like a, a microscopic kind of cut, but they can get infected that way. Or they may have it on their hands and touch their eyes or their mouth and, and become infected uh, in, in that way or potentially spread it to other patients or, or other people. Um, it can also be spread uh, through contaminated objects that you might find in a hospital, like, like syringes, uh, perhaps thermometers or gloves or things like that if they're not um, uh, disposed of or, or um, adequately uh, taken care of. So what CDC has been doing, um, we uh, activated our emergency operations center in July of last year. Um, the uh, that's really when the, the transmission and the, the cases, the epidemic, started to, to take off. And we've had about 3,000 uh, staff uh, people working uh, directly on this response, uh, many of them deploy deployed to West Africa, others working uh, around the U.S. to, to prepare uh, for uh, uh, any outbreak that might happen here. Uh, CDC has about 15,000 staff, so about 3,000, a, a large uh, number of our, our people uh, have been involved. Um, I have many colleagues who uh, volunteered uh, to go to West Africa to work side by side with our West African colleagues to help get this epidemic under control. Uh, many of, of my colleagues from CDC uh, uh, rep repeatedly volunteered for deployment, so went back several times, extended those deployments. And in fact, some of them were um, ostracized when they came back. Their, their neighbors didn't want to be around them. They didn't want them sending their children to school, even though the children hadn't been anywhere, hadn't been, uh, you know, weren't any risk to anyone. But uh, nevertheless, they, they uh, certainly uh, wanted to do whatever we could to help control this, this epidemic. Um, so this is a, a timeline of uh, uh, the uh, response over the past uh, year and a half. And as you see, in July of last year, that's where the cases really started to take off in, in Liberia, which is the, the green curve there, in Sierra Leone, which is the blue curve, and in Guinea. And um, the, the timeline 
uh, points out uh, a number of different things that our uh, organization has been doing to, to work to control this, including deploying people to uh, West Africa, uh, as well as uh, we set up a network uh, of labs around the U.S. We have a network of labs around the U.S. that can quickly test for cases to determine if that is, in fact, caused by Ebola. We've been doing training of healthcare workers, so uh, a lot of different activities uh, over the past uh, year and a half. So our goals in the outbreak uh, response, um, so let me, let me take you back to where we were um, in July of last year. And um, what we were thinking was, well, we don't have a vaccine at this time that can prevent this infection. Um, we don't have a, a medication like an antibiotic that could be given to, to eradicate the infection in someone who's sick. And so what, what can we do? Uh, to uh, control this, the spread of this epidemic. Well, what we do know is how it spread um, from person to person. Uh, on average, how many people become infected from one infected person. And so we asked our, our mathematical modelers to do some studies uh, to determine if we could get people who are infected with Ebola um, in, a, in a hospital setting, in a controlled setting like a, an Ebola treatment center or someplace where there is good infection control so they don't transmit to other people, um, what would we need, how many people would we need to do that for to break the back of this epidemic? And so what our mathematical study showed was if we could get 70% of the people who were infected in one of these hospital settings with good infection control, um, that would be kind of a tipping point where we would break the back of the epidemic, where, where the cases would start to drop off uh, precipitously. So if you, if you understand that, if you think about that, then the, the uh, goals in our response kind of make sense. So we wanted to stop human-to-human -human transmission. And because of that, uh, case identification was really important. If someone was sick with Ebola, we needed to know that and get the, get the people into a hospitalized or a, a, a treatment center type setting. We had to have good isolation and, and care. And there were limitations of not having enough Ebola treatment units or community uh, care centers. We had to have good contact tracing. So if there were people who were potentially exposed to an ill individual uh, who, who could be infected, we need to know who, the, who those people were, uh, have good infection control. Safe burials, very important, uh, because when a person is deceased, their, their bodily fluids can still be infectious to other people. So that, that was very important. Uh, communications, obviously, uh, very important. And for patient care, we needed to have good triage, experienced staff, and strict use of personal protective equipment like you see in this photo. And of course, this is happening um, uh, in West Africa where they are already uh, facing a lot of challenges with an overburdened uh, public health and healthcare system. Um, healthcare workers in short supply, uh, underpaid or unpaid, um, not enough treatment centers or hospital beds, not enough uh, personal protective equipment or medical supplies. So already a, a challenging situation there. Safe burials, as I mentioned, were an important uh, part of this um, uh, response. And so we do have uh, some uh, medical anthropologists that were working with us at CDC that were working in West Africa to help understand the situation there and um, uh, work with uh, the burial teams and hopefully, um, you know, improve that process of safe burials as, as time went on. Um, what I heard from talking to my medical anthropology colleagues in this process 
um, is, you know, some of the challenges that they saw were, uh, you know, a, a family uh, might have a, a, a sick family member and that person dies and the body is taken away and they're not told what's happening or, you know, um, why it needs to happen and that type of thing. And uh, certainly I can see why that would be challenging, you know, for any of us, not being able to grieve and, and understand what's happening in that process. So um, just understanding from that perspective uh, was really uh, important. Here in the U.S., um, as I mentioned, uh, there was the, the gentleman from uh, Liberia uh, who uh, traveled to Dallas, Texas, uh, went to the emergency room, uh, was sent out and came back in critically ill and subsequently tragically died from Ebola. And um, the, the situation there was uh, very challenging because the neighborhood where the gentleman had been staying was a, a very underserved uh, area. And uh, a number of the people that he came into contact with um, were kind of living paycheck to paycheck. So to tell these people, well, you need to stay at home for 21 days so you can be monitored to see if you get a fever, they, they just weren't prepared to do that. They didn't necessarily have the means to do that. Um, they were also being stigmatized by the local community, by the media, and so forth. So uh, CDC asked me to go to, to Dallas to help with those, those efforts. And uh, what we were able to do was um, I worked with uh, the local religious uh, communities, local clergy, uh, and um, local nonprofits, food banks to get basic necessities to these families so that they're able to stay at home. Um, uh, we also uh, worked with the local schools to get letters for children who needed to stay out of school, uh, local letters for their businesses, so people, if they needed to be out of work for a period of time, they were able to do that. Um, we had local uh, charitable foundations who uh, donated things like iPads so that, uh, you know, uh, people could, could communicate that way. They donated cell phones so people could stay in touch with their family members for emotional support, uh, games for the children, things like that. So, so that was uh, helpful and useful to see the community uh, come together in, in that way. But a, a real challenging part of this had to do with stigma. And so what we found there in, in Dallas was that um, uh, certainly the, the, the contacts of this individual were being stigmatized. There was a lot of prejudice. And uh, people from West Africa in general were being stigmatized. And even people who, who appeared to be from West Africa, there was a lot of prejudice, uh, stigma, misinformation uh, going on. So um, what we did was to, to work with the local uh, religious leaders, faith communities, uh, civic leaders, to begin to get out messages about stigma. And so we've... Um, worked with them to communicate to their congregations and their groups uh, about ways of preventing stigma. Uh, we've published this in a, in a paper that I've got some copies here I'm, I can share with you. In fact, John, if you want to pass around that, that stack, you can, or just hand them back there. But um, we, we talked some about, about stigma. This is a table from uh, the paper, and there's a link there where you can, you can get to it uh, on the Internet. Um, stigma involves stereotyping and discriminating against an identifiable group of people. Um, We've seen, seen many instances of societies excluding, blaming, or devaluing those who are feared to have a disease. Um, it comes from a lack of knowledge and gossip that spreads false information, rumors, myths, and, and fears. And, and the way to, to counter this, one way is to speak out against negative uh, social media statements about groups of people or excluding uh, people 
who are at no risk of, of transmitting uh, a particular disease. And so when I talked to the, the faith leaders, you know, I said, well, you know, we've seen this before. This is the same thing that we saw in the, in the AIDS epidemic and with other diseases, and it's just happening in a, a compressed time frame, but we, we know what this is. And when they realized that, you know, people began to, to speak out about this. And I think we've got a long ways to go, but I, hopefully we were all able to begin to make some, some progress. Um, after returning from Dallas, um, we worked with the, the White House to organize some uh, calls for other cities uh, to prepare them for, for potential uh, outbreaks and, and worked with leaders uh, uh, in other communities to speak out against stigma. And I think that you know, there is a long ways to go with this, but hopefully we're, we were able to, to uh, alert people and begin to make some, some progress. So uh, the domestic response, um, you know, we, we worked to train healthcare workers across the U.S. Uh, we designated uh, in the U.S. Ebola treatment hospitals, so if there were additional cases, they could be sent to these specialized hospitals here in the U.S. for treatment. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a network of labs that are able to, to test to determine if Ebola is, is the cause of infection, and those are, are located around the U.S., and so uh, we find ourselves here uh, at the tail end of what we call the epi curve, uh, where we're trying to, um, what we call getting to zero, getting to zero cases, zero transmission. And that is, in many ways, the most challenging uh, part. Um, um, we, you know, Liberia, we had hoped was Ebola-free a, a couple times, but you may have recently read in the news uh, new, new cases uh, found there. Uh, Sierra Leone hopefully is Ebola-free, and Guinea is getting to where it's, it's hopefully Ebola-free, but we want to stop those last cases of transmission, and that is, it's challenging, but, but hopefully uh, we will get there uh, soon. So just to conclude, um, I'll just summarize some, some key points from this talk uh, specifically for uh, folks here at, at AAR. And so um, I think that first, um, uh, what I saw with public health people and with faith communities is that we both had a commitment to treating the sick and preventing uh, cases of this disease. Uh, I saw in many of my public health colleagues uh, a willingness to volunteer to go work side by side with our colleagues in West Africa. And so I think that social justice is a common denominator between uh, faith and public health, and it's something that we can come together uh, around. I think that uh, second, the two sides need one another. I think that public health and, and faith uh, really do do need one another. I think that from faith communities, uh, we need people who understand the science, who understand diseases and how they're transmitted, whether it's Ebola or HIV or even things like diabetes and things like that. So, so we need that science background. But from the public health side, we also need uh, faith communities, faith leaders who are trusted uh, by their constituencies uh, who can speak out against things like stigma and prejudice when we see that and, and, and interpret those things and, and find ways to address those problems when we see them. So both sides do need one another. Um, thirdly, um, you may find that uh, although the two sides need one another, um, public health, to be honest, may not know how to work with you. As, as faith leaders, faith communities. Uh, they may not know how to engage with you. So I ask that you would be patient if you're reaching out to, to uh, health organizations, your state or local health departments or international organizations. Uh, work with them to find ways to work together and realize that they may not know, may, they may not necessarily understand the best ways to work together, but, but we do need to do that. And so uh, my last point is um, 
something I mentioned uh, when I was giving these talks last year around the height of the epidemic, the height of transmission. And I, I would tell people that uh, we are eventually going to get this epidemic under control. Uh, and the thing is that we'll be looking back on this epidemic for many, many years. Uh, we'll be teaching generations of public health students, medical students from what we learned from the way we acted in this epidemic. And what kind of story do we want to tell? Um, do we want to tell a story uh, about fear and stigma and prejudice, uh, you know, and, and that was the way we responded? Um, well, yeah, we did see some of that, and there was a, a lot of that going on in the early part of this uh, epidemic, and those are still uh, huge problems. Uh, but we also saw uh, communities coming together to help out uh, families who were needing to stay at home. We saw many different uh, people volunteering their time to go uh, stop this epidemic. So I think that there is something that we can build on there, some, some hope. And uh, hopefully there are things that we've learned in this response that we can uh, use for the future when we face uh, future epidemics, outbreaks, Ebola, other diseases, uh, ways that uh, public health and faith can work together to, to stop uh, future epidemics. So, thank you. Well, in this uh, relatively intimate setting, I hope we'll have a chance to, you know, get to know each other in, in a sense, and so that we as religion scholars can learn a lot more about public health and public health perspectives and priorities, and at the same time that uh, folks in public health can learn about the, the diversity of uh, where we're coming from as scholars, as both theologians, but also as historians and philosophers and ethicists, um, and, and uh, figure out how, how that conversation can develop. Our, our next speaker is Professor Ellen Eidler. She is the Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor uh, of the Department of Sociology and Director of the Religion and Public Health Cooperative, Collaborative at Emory University. She attended Union Theological Seminary on a Rockefeller Brothers Fellowship, uh, so she has a theological background. Um, her books include Cohesiveness and Coherence, Religion and the Health of the Elderly, and The Hidden Healthcare System, which she co-authored with Lowell Levin. And she has authored, or co-authored, as far as I could tell, over 60 articles. Please welcome uh, Dr. Eidler. Uh, thank you for being here, and thank you, Joseph, for organizing this interesting session. I'm happy to be a part of it. Um, I came to Emory in 2009 uh, as because of an epidemic, uh, because of the epidemic of HIV-AIDS and the uh, development of an important medication from some Emory professors that resulted in a large amount of money being given to Emory. Um, and different groups of faculty were encouraged to develop interdisciplinary programs. Uh, and some of those faculty members had worked together in the past, faculty members from the Rollins School of Public Health and the Candler School of Theology. Um, and because of the presence of the interfaith health program at Emory, there was a strong group of faculty who were interested in collaborating across that pretty big divide. Um, and so I was very privileged to be offered a position to come and work with people from these different disciplines, and I have really loved being at Emory since 2009. Um, so, when I came to Emory, we had, I was very motivated to address the current paradigm in public health, which is that it is the social determinants of health 
that are the primary drivers of population health and the primary determinants of what makes people healthy, uh, more than it is the health care systems or the medical care that they receive. And the World Health Organization in 2007 had published its commission report on the social determinants of health. Um, and really, this is the dominant paradigm in public health today, that Population health is determined by the circumstances in which people live. And in the middle of the slide there, you can see the quote from the WHO's report. The social determinants are the circumstances in which people are born, grow up, live, work, and age, and the systems put in place to deal with illness. These circumstances are, in turn, shaped by a wider set of forces, economics, social policies, and politics. This is a big, thick report. I have a copy of it. It weighs about three pounds. The word religion doesn't occur anywhere in this book. If you were to ask me about what the social circumstances of people's lives from birth to death would include, for most people around the world, you would think that religion would have some place in the discussion, but in fact, it didn't. So, so our contention and the motivation for the faculty working group that we got started right away was to make an argument for why religious communities belonged among the social determinants, that this paradigm was incomplete because it had left out a very important set of institutions that is a part of the fabric of daily life for billions of people around the world. So we started a faculty seminar that um, had people coming and we presented papers and it was all very interesting. And then I said, well, we really ought to do something besides just talk to each other as interesting as this is. And so um, we collaborated, the original group and then a larger group collaborated on a book um, called Religion as a Social Determinant of Public Health. Um, and that book was published last September in 2014. We did some session, we did a session on it at AAR last year. Um, we also held a conference at Emory last November and uh, had some wonderful speakers whose names you can see up there. Um, the title of the conference was Practices, Peoples, Partnerships, and Politics. And I think I'm going to use that framework of those facets of the relationship between religion and public health to organize some thoughts for you today on religion's role in epidemics. So the big question for today is, what role has religion played in the past in epidemics, and are they any guide to understanding the role of religion in the Ebola epidemic? The past is prologue. So let me start with practices. Uh, we began the book with 12 brief chapters that were um, descriptions of religious practices written by almost entirely by people who were members of those religious traditions who knew those practices from the inside. Um, we wanted to start the book that way because the role of religious practices as a determinant of health is something that has been very much left out of the religion and health literature. Even when people are studying religion and health these days, they tend to focus much more on the inner life of people, the subjective experience of religion, their beliefs, their intrinsic religiosity, these kind of internal belief, cognitive and emotional uh, dimensions of it, and don't think very much about the behaviors that people people uh, practice that actually can have quite a big effect on health. So um, we, we 
had quite a lot of discussion in the group about which practices and which faith traditions. We tried to maximize all of them and kind of map them onto each other. So the authors wrote from their lived experience of these practices. We were only interested in practices that lay persons engaged in. These were not the practices of religious virtuosi who, you know, attain very high levels of practice. Um, they were things that people do in those religious traditions. Um, they're cyclical. Some, we, we organize them into daily and weekly, annual, and then single once-in-a-lifetime practices. Uh, they are practiced collectively most of the time, and they involve both the body, the mind, and the spirit. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples, but before I do that, I wanted to share with you this little uh, startling and exciting piece of text. Uh, I was asked to write the entry on the subject of religion and health for the Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences when uh, the third edition of it was published in um, the year 2000. And I, in preparing to write this chapter, I went to the reference stacks of Rutgers University, very dusty place, and I dug out the 1937 original Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences uh, that was published in 1937. And of course they didn't have any entry on religion and health, but they had an entry on public health. It went on for about eight pages. And it was written by this guy with the funny initials. So you see the CEA Winslow, Charles Edward Amory Winslow is his name. He <clears throat> Charles Edward was a professor of public health, in fact, the founder of the School of Public Health at Yale University, the founder of the School of Nursing there. He was an editor of the American Public, uh, the Journal of the American Public Health Association. He was a water bacteriologist who worked for the League of Nations. He was a health assessor for them. He taught at MIT, Chicago, Yale. Are you getting the picture? <laughs> this guy was a very impressive and sort of renaissance man of public health in the early part of the 20th century. And so they asked him as a leader in the field to write this entry for this encyclopedia. And this is the first sentence that I've just scanned for you here. The first sentence of this thing on public health, it's on public health, remember, it's not supposed to be about religion, is the earliest examples of practices designed to promote the public health are to be found among primitive peoples inextricably mingled with the ritual of religion. And he goes on to speak about the burial of the dead, about food preparation and dietary laws, about the treatment of lepers, about the sources of water that people drink from. And, um, and it was a quite amazing, I thought, since I was writing about religion and health, that I should look up public health and find that the first sentence was about religion. It was an amazing moment in my little own period of scholarship. Uh, I also was a student at Yale, and I took biostatistics in the Winslow Auditorium, and I passed this guy's head. There's a big bust of him outside. So I remembered the guy with the funny initials from my statistics classes. <laughs> Okay, so here are a couple of religious practices that have public health consequences. Um, the first one was written by Professor Don Seaman from the Department of Religion at Amory. Uh, he wrote about circumcision in Judaism. Circumcision is also practiced in Islam. Um, and uh, he wrote about the importance of this family ritual, the celebration of it, the welcoming of a new life into the community, and the, you know, the, the marking of membership of that child as a member of the community for their life. It's a permanent 
transition to being a member of that lifelong community. So um, as you can see from this party shot, it's obviously a very nice occasion and people have good food and they enjoy seeing each other and being very happy about a new baby. Um, there are a very strong set of studies linking circumcision to lower HIV AIDS rates, transmission rates. Um, there's, there are meta-analyses of these, so there are many studies that show a, a profoundly lower rates of HIV transmission among men who have been circumcised. And in addition to that, there are also lower rates for cervical cancer among the female partners of men who have been circumcised. So it isn't only a matter of the protection or lowering of risk for the circumcised male himself, but also a protection for female partners. So it's a very important um, and maybe not so well appreciated risk factor or risk reduction factor in the HIV AIDS epidemic. And then a second from the other end of the life course, um, this chapter was written by Bhagarath Machmudar, uh, who just retired from Emory School of Medicine. He was an obstetrician gynecologist at uh, Grady hospital as well. And he wrote about cremation rituals in Hinduism. He also, besides being a professor of medicine and a physician, he's also a Hindu priest. Um, but he wrote about cremation rituals. Um, and as this photograph shows you, cre cremation along the Ganges is carried out in the open air. Um, and often the incompletely burned remains are dumped into the river, so there's water pollution, there's air pollution, and the impact on the this water source for many, many people, millions of people who treat it, who use it for bathing and drinking and cooking uh, is important. So there have been many plans for cleaning up the Ganges. Rajiv Gandhi had one, um, but it, nothing very much has happened. So he wrote about those risks as well as the religious practice itself. So as I say, I think maybe I've said all these things already. Um, we, we focused on practice um, in, in the opening of the book because we wanted to embody the religious experience rather than just thinking of it as a cerebral dimension. Um, and, and we wanted to also contextualize religion into the many faith traditions there are around the world and the many varieties of practices that exist. Um, we, as I said, we only looked at practices engaged in by laypersons, and the, we, we really wanted to emphasize the embodiedness of it and the fact that all five senses are often involved in religious practices, so there's a kind of body-mind-spirit unification that takes place. Um, and we think of re religious practices as exposures, especially because they have a cyclical nature, um, repeated as I said, daily or weekly or annually. So, um, so we opened the book with practices, and so that's practices. Peoples. So um, we wanted to take a population-based approach to ask whether there is evidence of the connection between religion and health, and especially I wanted to focus on infectious disease here. Um, in, and so I wrote a large chapter in the center of the book that reviews the evidence about religion and health and religion as a determinant of health. Um, and so John said to keep the numbers down, so I'm going to only show you one, one graph and one table, even though there are many more. Um, this, this slide, this is a summary slide. Let me see if I can get my pointer up here. Are you able to see my pointer? Okay, so this is a summary slide that shows the risk of mortality from all causes in a, in a series of studies 
when you compare people who never attend religious services compared with those who attend frequently. These are all studies that have population bases. In other words, they're representative samples of their communities. Uh, some of them are regional, some of them are national, some of them are international. And um, in all of the cases, the mortality risk for causes, from all causes of mortality, except for this one right here, is above the center line. The center line means that there's no effect. Uh, and when the final results of these models were taken into account and these models are adjusting for everything, including age and gender and social class and education and smoking and other disorders that people might have, these are the final results from these studies. In, in all these cases, you can see that there's a higher mortality risk for people who never attend religious services compared with those who attend frequently. And I just want to highlight this one. Um, this was the study by Hummer et al., a group of researchers from the University of Texas. This was the first national U.S. study that was done, published in uh, Demography. Uh, Bob Hummer and his colleagues found that there was a almost three times greater risk of mortality from all causes for people who never attended services compared with those who attended frequently over a seven-year period. And they also found, when they estimated it, that the life expectancy difference for people who attend services frequently was seven years longer on average than the life expectancy for people who never attend religious services. So they had very strong findings of a very protective effect of attending religious services by the, by the person's own report. These were surveys that were then followed up for mortality. And they, this was for mortality from all causes, but from the Hummer study, they also did break it down by different causes, and they had a, they had a, a, a code for infectious disease. So I've just pulled that little bit of the table out for you. So as you can see, people who had, who died from infectious diseases, or people who never attended services, were about four times as likely to die. This is telling us nearly 3.5. 3.9 times as likely to die from infectious diseases as people who never attended, as people who attended more than once per week. It's just one comparison of both ends of the spectrum. You can see right here that it goes down a little bit when they add in variables for social ties, meaning that that's a very plausible reason why people who attend services might be less likely to die, and that is because they are less socially isolated. They have more social support and more community attachment than other people do. So that did tend to reduce the relationship. So, so I've got a little, I think maybe I've said everything here about peoples. Um, we wanted to focus on entire populations, not just people who were sick, but representative samples. And the evidence from these population-based studies, as I said, there were quite a few more graphs like that, at both the individual and the group level shows that there's a significant protective effect of religious attendance uh, for people who tend services more often. They have a lower risk of mortality from all causes, and especially from infectious disease, uh, compared with people who attend less often. That effect operates through a number of very plausible things that I don't really have time to go into, but um, there are many good scientific and understandable reasons why religious attendance might be connected to better health. Uh, most of these studies adjust for those things and find some remaining effect, but even when the effect is reduced by adjusting for some of those things there, they make sense in the context of religious observance. And 
um, these, these practices unfold as we age. The, the cumulative effect on these is demonstrable all the way into old age. So next is partnerships. Uh, what happens when religious institutions and public health institutions interact with each other in the context of epidemics? So um, Scott's chapter was specifically on this. Part five of the book was about three epidemics of our time. And Scott and Mimi Kaiser of the Interfaith Health Program wrote specifically about partnerships in pandemics, especially for influenza. So I was going to give you a couple of examples of the partnerships that took place between religion and public health institutions in a couple of famous epidemics. Uh, one of them, and, and well, and I have, there's actually three, one in the next part, and they're all really, really good books. I know people at the AAR like really good books, so I'm recommending three for your reading list. The first one is called The Ghost Map by Stephen Johnson. How many have you read about it or heard of it? It's a terrific book, really well written and a wonderful story. Um, the... Uh, it's about the very famous outbreak of cholera in Broad Street in the Soho area of London in 1854. Uh, if you've heard of it before, you've probably heard of it because someone named John Snow was the became the father of epidemiology by heroically removing the handle from the water pump that seemed to be the source of the infection and thereby stopping the spread of the disease because if no one could get any more water out of the Broad Street pump, um, then no one could get infected. Um, and this is a quote from his book uh, about Broad Street and Golden Square and the adjoining streets. So. John Snow is the father of epidemiology because he removed the handle, but there was a partner who was a really important player in this. Um, so this is a picture of the Soho neighborhood, and here's, here's the pump right here in the middle. Um, this is the Soho neighborhood, which is bounded on the north by Oxford Street and on the west by Regent Street. And these are big, broad avenues with lots of wealthy people living in big houses in them. And in the center behind them are a lot of little alleys and warrens and dead ends and the tenements that people lived in in those crowded conditions behind the big avenues was a very stark difference of poverty and hunger and inadequacy back here in the facilities, whereas rich people in London in the 19th century lived out here. So here's the pump right here on Broad Street right in the center. And so that's one um, map. This is the more famous map, though, which if you've heard about this story before, this is the John Snow's map, which black bars that are at, located at the different addresses on these streets represent the number of deaths that took place at each one of those houses. So as you can see, many people lived in crowded conditions in these houses, and many people died. Over here is St. Luke's Church. This is the Church of England parish system, and St. Luke's Church was the church for this parish, and this is the Reverend Henry Whitehead, who was the associate pastor for that church. Uh, he was the oh, senior curate, I'm sorry. And St. Luke's Church is on Berwick Street. It doesn't, it's not there anymore. I've looked for it. It's not there anymore. <laughs> but these were his people who were dying in this epidemic. And um, he wrote about it quite a bit. Um, so during the first days of the epidemic, he was visiting the people in his congregation who were sick and dying, dying violent, quick deaths. 
Um, some of them were his, I mean, he knew everyone, but some of them were his very good friends. By Thursday of that, so it, the epidemic began on Thursday, August 31st. By Thursday, a week later, um, there was a meeting of the vestry, the parish vestry, which was in charge of the public health of this parish. And John Snow, uh, a well-known physician in London, attended that meeting because he had a theory uh, that was counter to the prevailing theory of disease at the time. The prevailing theory was called the miasma theory. Disease was transmitted through the gases, the smells, the bad fumes that were in the air. Snow's theory was that diseases, especially cholera, which was his main source of study, uh, was transmitted through water. And nobody agreed with him. He was a, a lone voice arguing for that. But because of this outbreak, he immediately went there and began studying it and was able to convince them to take the handle off the pump. So that happened on Thursday the 7th. On Friday the 8th, he, uh, Henry Whitehead, the parish priest, preached his regular weekly sermon, which is a very interesting document. I'm lucky to have a copy of it. And uh, he preached about the outbreak and, and the sources, the causes of it. And uh, he noted that many elderly women survived it. But then in October, he published a report called The Cholera on Berwick Street um, and did a very good job of collecting data and presenting it in tables. It's a very scientific study for a parish priest to do in two months. But in, And then by November, he and Snow teamed up, mostly because Whitehead thought that it was the air. He didn't think it was the water. He kind of wanted to disprove Snow. But Whitehead was the one who went around to all the households, who interviewed the survivors about the time when people drank water and when they got sick and when they died. And if they fled the neighborhood because of their fear, he knew where they went because he knew where their relatives lived. And so he had contacts with people in that neighborhood that that John Snow certainly didn't have. John Snow wasn't, they weren't his, he was, he was the queen's doctor. He was not the poor people's doctor. So, but they teamed up. They did this report, and mostly because of the ability of Whitehead to contact people and to have the social capital with this group, uh, they did a, the report, and then eventually Whitehead was the one who actually found what's called the index case um, and noted through his careful study of the records that it was a, a baby named Lewis who uh, contacted the disease before anyone else did and who survived for four days and whose diapers were washed in a cesspool that had a connection through to the Broad Street pump. So it was Whitehead who found the source of the infection, all because of his knowledge of the community and the people there. So, and another outbreak uh, is uh, the smallpox. This is another really good book by William Feggy, uh, who is... Um, was the director of the Carter Center, is a senior fellow at the Gates Foundation now, and a public health hero, just like Henry Whitehead. Uh, he was born in, 18, in 1936 and uh, was the son of a Lutheran pastor, also the nephew of a missionary in New Guinea. And he worked for the Lutheran Church and was assigned, and, and for the CDC, and was assigned to Nigeria to work on smallpox eradication and uh, arrived there with very few amount, very few vaccines or very few drugs to use. And when he arrived, they, there was an outbreak that he found uh, in, the, that was in the rural areas. And he was able, because of his connections with the Lutheran Church, he was able to contact the missionaries who were working there, who, uh, who got 
who had shortwave radios and were talking with each other every night. And because of that, he was able to completely change the approach to vaccination and to the treatment of smallpox by switching from a sort of vaccinate everybody kind of approach to a surveillance and containment approach. So he he made a huge change, um, in, and it was really because of his, we could say, social capital. So I'm seeing that you would like me to stop. I had something more to say about politics, but I would be happy to save that for later if we get to it at all. So let me just sum up partnerships. And there was just one little more piece, but we can do it later if there's time and not otherwise, okay? I'm sorry I went on too long. Um, okay, so so I would just like to say that as far as partnerships go, public health institutions and religious institutions are present in all societies, even if there isn't a lot of religious observance. There, there are those institutions, um, and they can work together. And it's kind of my baseline that both of these institutions have the well-being of their people at heart. I mean, they are motivated to protect the people of their community, whether it is the specific religious community or the population as a whole. Religious groups have an attachment to the ground and to their communities that is really irreplaceable. Um, they are on the ground. They do know everybody already. Henry Whitehead's access and, and Bill Feige's access to those knowledge networks and the people, what people knew and the, to the capabilities of their communities is really irreplaceable. So, so there is reason to think of the capacities and capabilities of both institutions as complementary to each other. And while there may be disagreements, and that was what I was going to get to, but if we have time, um, there is often a, a strong basis for working together collaboratively. Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott and Ellen, for giving us really the two sides of, of public health from sort of the biomedical, um, uh, epidemiological side uh, all the way along the continuum to a sociological side. Um, and our next speaker, and, and so it, we're really fortunate to be in um, Atlanta um, next to the CDC and Emory University to have you here to speak with us. And our third speaker uh, from, from associated with Emory University is John Blevins, who is a theologian and acting director and associate research professor in the Interfaith Health Program at the Hubert Department of Global Health in the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. He is also an Africanist, having done extensive collaborative research on masculinity, sexuality, and health in Kenya, and he has worked as a chaplain in HIV clinical settings in Chicago. We are particularly, to have, uh, particularly happy to have John with us because of his extensive contributions to the African religions group here at the American Academy of Religion over the past few years. Uh, John. Good afternoon. Um, so I want to talk to you about um, the question of meaning and the contested area uh, and the contentious area at points and places where uh, religion and public health may be in some points of tension, and to do that in the context of Ebola. Um, I think of both meanings embedded both in, um, in our ways of thinking but also in our practices, and you'll see that just in the way we're doing these presentations. I am employing the common practice within the culture of public health, and that is to present in PowerPoint format. So I'm using PowerPoint, which is not as common in the AAR, but try to go to an American Public Health Association meeting and not use PowerPoint, and you'll be laughed out of the, out of the conference. So I've got a PowerPoint uh, 
presentation because I'm doing a public health presentation. So my paper is on, or my talk is on the meanings of life and death in the context of Ebola, and I want to think about that in three ways. One is about the question of, of what happened in the response to Ebola to the bodies of those who died, this question from the public health uh, perspective of managing the possibility of a transmission of the virus um, through the bodies of those who had died and the protocols on the burial of the dead. So this idea of how we manage bodies of those who died. And then questions not only related to death, but also related to life and questions of life and death. This idea of uh, the, the social, cultural, and political context related to vulnerability um, and access to services. So what insulates people from risk and what creates vulnerability in relation to risk. And then this question of, in the context of Ebola prevention, um, questions of anxiety related to transmission not only with those who were visibly sick, but in the time frame um, when they did not show symptomology or after they had recovered but may have reservoirs of virus and, and certain bodily fluids and the kind of ambivalence of risk in those contexts. And I want to do look at all of those in context uh, related to religion and public health. So this first quote um, is a quote from uh, uh, a community leader in, among Muslims in Sierra Leone. Burying people without prayers is like dumping the remains of a dog in a hole. That the meaning related to burial, the meaning related not only to the physical body of the person who has died, but the meaning related to the life of that person, the meaning related to the person who is uh, in charge of burial and to the community gathered at the time of burial is an important and absolutely essential set of meanings um, that are created in community context um, and that in, if public health thinks only about a transmission vector route and doesn't pay attention to those meanings, um, not only are they missing the boat, are we missing the boat in the public health sphere, but we're being disrespectful to religious beliefs and deep spiritual beliefs and practices um, in a way that this quote, I think, is really um, indicative of, and it's, it's an absolutely essential reminder. So I want to think about this idea of the initial response, public health response, um, from a number of international um, programs, including the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, um, related to um, the burial of bodies of those who had been infected. You've already seen this um, incidence curve um, in Scott's slides. These are the cases on a week-by-week -week basis um, uh, in the first weeks and months of the epidemic in 2014. And as you can see, um, the new cases were rising at hugely sharp rates by uh, early fall of 2014. And the trend line there you see is literally going through the roof. Um, and where was that red line taking us? Um, in a, a CDC report in September of 2014, the headline read that uh, it was estimated that Ebola cases could reach 1.4 million within uh, the next four months, according to CDC estimates. If that trend line held, that was where we were going in terms of um, cases. And with the mortality rate, with the numbers of people dying, somewhere around Scott, help me with this, 20, 20%, 25%? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so now it's 30%, but initially, particularly before there was a, a, a medical response, it was much higher. So uh, literally hundreds of thousands to millions of people who might be dead within four months. Um, and so the public health response was to understand the facts of transmission, the disease management and disease surveillance issue of that question. But in doing so, um, I would argue that the first wave of the public health response to Ebola, particularly by Western programs and Western organizations that had come into West Africa to um, respond by not paying attention to the question of burial and the meanings behind the fact of the death, um, missed an opportunity for um, engagement and finding that common ground that Ellen and Scott have mentioned and I do, do think is absolutely essential. Luckily, the trend line broke, and the trend line in the next months looks like the dotted line that you see here um, with cases going down. And uh, by February of 2015, uh, we were down to around 100 cases a week um, as opposed to it at its absolute height in one week, 800 cases. So we saw a sharp and dramatic reduction. I can't say that there was a that what I'm about to talk about was the cause for this, but I want to simply note the correlation between this shift and what happened in relation to burial. Uh, this is the cover of a book that the CDC uh, co-authored along with the World Health Organization in 1998 on a protocol for burying, uh, for uh, infection control from uh, hemorrhagic fevers, including Ebola, um, and giving recommendations to healthcare workers and public health workers um, uh, in those in countries where there was a viral outbreak as to what should be done. In a 142-page book, there is one mention of religion and spiritual beliefs in the book, and that is only to say, at the time of burial, to be aware of the family's cultural practices and religious beliefs and help the family to understand why some practices cannot be done because they place the family or others at risk for exposure. So the, the guidance given by the public health um, the official large-scale public health response that was guiding the 2014 response to Ebola was based on this book, and this, these were the guidelines that were initially put in place. And there was a recognition that religious beliefs and practices may be important, but that the uh, person uh, responsible for the burial of the body of the person who had died would simply acknowledge those and go about with the approved protocol for um, containing infection for the body of that person who had died. It obviously was not working. Um, so by October of 2014, a new protocol was put in place from the World Health Organization. This is the title, and you can find the entire book and download it from the organization website of the World Health Organization. This, uh, the protocols here, there are seven steps in the, in the protocol. In five, I'm sorry, 11 steps. In five of the 11 steps, religious beliefs and spiritual practices are exp explicitly named, and they're engaged by a multidisciplinary team that include not only um, medical providers and um, representatives from health systems and health facilities, but also religious leaders, um, both Christian, Muslim, and traditional religious leaders as part of the team who responds um, uh, for, uh, to the family at a time of death. And one of those 11 steps is only a religious, not a, I don't mean only in that it's insignificant, I mean it has no health, uh, public health um, impact 
other than demonstrating respect for religion and spiritual practice, and that is, is to engage those gathered at the place of burial in community prayer and ritual with a set of recommendations for how that would be carried out. There are explicit multi-page directions for how the team can honor Christian traditions and Muslim traditions. There's no recommendations for honoring other indigenous religious beliefs um, in West African contexts, but there are multi-paging uh, instructions for how to work with uh, the community and the family to conduct a Christian burial and a Muslim burial and to modify and to adapt deeply held religious practices such as ablution um, to the context of a burial of the body of a person who's died from Ebola that allowed for that ritual to be carried out in a modified way. So um, it was estimated at the time that this um, um, protocol came out, the World Health Organization held a news conference in November of 2014, and they estimated that two-thirds of all new Ebola infections were due to exposure during burials and funerals. So um, one of the primary routes of transmission and, and vulnerability to infection was um, uh, being with the body of, of a loved one who had died and honoring that body and honoring that loved one through religious ritual, and that that was a, a primary cause for transmission and infection for others um, and uh, uh, was something that public health officials were going to have to address. The new protocol that I mentioned um, had been initiated and begun to be put in place just one week prior. So where those two dot, uh, arrows are, the one on the left is when the new protocol was published and first began to be used. The second is the um, uh, um, press conference by the World Health Organization noting the importance of burial as the site for infection. And by paying attention to this for the first time, we then see, within a few weeks later, this sharp drop-off in numbers of new cases. Now, I, I know enough from my public health colleagues in the sciences to not um, confuse correlation and causation. So I'm not trying to say that this is the single causative factor for this, but I do think that paying attention to spiritual practices, the embodied practices of people's lives, um, was absolutely essential. Um, and that we see this in this um, modified and adapted public health response uh, in light of the first protocols that, that did little to actually engage that question. But it's not just the question of what happens at the time of death. It's also the question of how um, uh, the, the, the contested space between life and death and the various meanings in place in people's life, um, both in relation to all illnesses, but particularly Ebola, and this these ways in which there may be tensions between a public health response, the kind of internalized beliefs and practices of people in their lives on the ground, and how we can find common ground in spite of those tensions. Um, and so I just want to talk about that a little bit. This is a question that's not just um, an individual question. It's a sociological and cultural question. It's also a political and economic question. Um, and religion and religious practice is, in, is embedded in the middle of all of that. So March 11th, um, 2015, is, was Decoration Day this last year in Liberia. If you have any experience with uh, West Africa and Liberia, you know that Decoration Day is... Um, 
um, an important um, day in the life of the country. It's a, it's a national holiday, um, and it is the day in which the graves of your family members are decorated, and people uh, travel to graves to honor their, their ancestors, to honor those who have died, to speak about the commonality between life now and the life of those who have gone before, and the ongoing um, um, continuity and thread between this life and those who have gone on before and uh, those who will come. Um, and uh, in the context of the first response to the Ebola epidemic in 2014, this most recent outbreak in Liberia, there are now thousands of people in Liberia who don't have a way to engage in that ritual because the bodies of their loved ones were cremated. So a public health response that worked very well in terms of uh, controlling the disease was cremation. But in terms of the meaning assigned to life and death, um, cremation provided no context for very important rituals, not only in relation to an infection, but in relation to honoring and revering those who have gone before um, and, and what it means for the community who lives um, for, for engaging in that honor. And so the, the ambivalence of not having a grave to go to um, because bodies were cremated rather than buried. Um, the way I think about this question and the ways I try and talk with my students as someone trained in, in religious studies and cultural studies in a school of public health is to recognize that a public health response that pays attention to religion can't just um, start with the idea that we will appreciate cultural values as we go about with our scientific or, or um, health science intervention. We have to recognize that what's at stake here is a, a, a potentially deeply contentious um, kind of battle for meaning, um, battle for meanings from health sciences and public health side and a battle for meaning in the context of a culture where a public health response is carried out. And that I often talk with my students in public health not to assume that they are culturally neutral going into another culture and that their job is simply to respect that culture, but that public health itself is a culture. It is a culture with a set of norms and values and beliefs and commitments and priorities of exercises of power of what counts as legitimate or what's delegitimated in that context. And it's a culture that goes to other parts of the world to intervene. And Ebola is a good example of that. There are lots of examples of that, but it's a good one. And when these goals are caught up with the question of what we do at a time of death, caring for the body of a loved one takes on a number of implications. And those of us in religious studies know these. It demonstrates faithfulness to God. It demonstrates um, uh, turning the body back to um, the God who has provided life and who is sovereign and God at time of life and at time of death. And it is um, part of the ritual of life and death that um, one recognizes is bigger than oneself, but that is part of a cosmology of the divine. It reflects respect for the dead loved one. Um, it respects, reflects a respect for her or him in the context of their own life and um, a way to kind of bring them into a new dimension of their own identity so that their death is not separate from their life. It's a manifestation of their life and a reflection of their life. Um, and uh, it ensures that for the family 
who uh, uh, remains behind in this world, that their relationship to their um, loved one who has died is one that continues to demonstrate respect and love. It's not that that relationship has ended. It's still present and active in time, and it's it's impacted by how um, the dead um, is is cared for and honored. It reinforces the familial, familial and social position of those who are left behind as to whether um, they are seen to demonstrate proper respect um, for their loved one. Um, and burial rituals become a symbol upon which people will resist and break the law that is put in place by the, the state, by governmental authorities, whether those be public health authorities or whether those be um, the mechanisms of a police state because the stakes are so high. We've seen that in many cultural contexts and in many times and cases, and we have to understand the central value of that from a public health perspective. But it's not just this question of meaning. It's material impact and it's material reality both in politics and in economics is also key. Um, and I just want to highlight the, the complexity of that, and I'm, this is not a criticism in terms of how our, our U.S. government spends, has spent its dollars in relation to Ebola as much as to raise a question of what it reflects about the politics in which money is spent in relation to lives and the question of how we, we think about whose lives matter more. And even if we don't intend that from a, the perspective of a funding agency or our U.S. tax dollars as citizens, the question of how people in another part of the world who are in the midst of an epidemic might perceive these kinds of numbers I'm about to tell you. So um, based on the, the public health emergency that Ebola represented, $1.2 million was allocated um, to CDC for an additional 1.2 for uh, its suite of activities from its international response. $576 million was allocated for its response on the domestic side, so about half um, as much as on the international context. So one-third um, domestically, two-thirds internationally. As of last week, this was WHO's numbers as of yesterday, 28,634 cases globally, 3,804 in Guinea, 10,672 in Liberia, 14,000 122 in Sierra Leone, and four in the United States. Now, again, I am not saying that we shouldn't have spent $576 million. I think it's a question we might ask about how the decisions are made in terms of numbers. It's, it's a question that comes out in terms of how our work, which is motivated by deep care and concern and compassion, I believe, is perceived in other parts of the world when these numbers look like they do, when 99.98% of all cases have occurred outside the United States. In terms of treatment, my own university, Emory, was in the national news, and for those of you who work in U.S. universities, you might imagine that your university would be like ours. We were thrilled to get stories in the New York Times talking about what a good job our, our medical staff did. And again, I'm not criticizing our medical staff. They demonstrated courage and they demonstrated a lot of hard work and real professionalism to respond and to provide medical care to the four people who were seen at Emory Hospital um, in the days um, 
uh, uh, at the height of the epidemic. But the estimate that I read from various sources, Emory never released what it cost, but estimates were it cost about $30,000 a day per person to treat. The four people who were treated in Emory, I looked it up, they stayed for a total of 94 days. So that's $2,820,000 in medical expenses to the healthcare system. Now, whether that was written off as uh, money lost by Emory for whatever reason um, is a question. Um, but it is a question related to the economics and the politics. The last thing I want to talk briefly about, and I'll do this very quickly, is the question of ambivalence um, in relation to risk. And I want to do that um, by giving, um, well, I'm going to give just one example because of time. And that's the picture you see here of the deserted streets. Those are the deserted streets of Freetown um, in Sierra Leone. Um, in September of 2014, at the height of the epidemic in Sierra Leone, the government instituted a 72-hour quarantine um, for all citizens. Um, it was designed so that uh, then uh, minister, officials from the Ministry of Health could go to homes and talk to people to assess um, whether a person may have been exposed to Ebola, whether they were in fact sick so they could get care, and there could be education about the epidemic. Um, but by this point in time, people had already begun to avoid a lot of kind of social institutions. They had quit going. They were not going to work as often. They were keeping their children out of schools. They were um, avoiding lots of public places. The places they were going were their religious communities. They were going to mosques and church. The quarantine went from Friday at noon until Monday morning, and so. Friday prayers and Sunday worship for Christians were the two kind of cultural institutions that were left out of the, um, that were directly impacted by the, the quarantine. Um, a number of religious leaders in response to that called for violating the quarantine and for attending worship service, partly because of their own um, belief that one should, should be part of a religious observance on those days where uh, their traditions say they should do that, but also partly by because of a question of the efficacy of how the government could respond and would they respond effectively. It was not just a religious meaning, it was a kind of meaning of resistance to what the government was calling for. In the midst of that uh, uh, kind of cascading possibility for the quarantine to break down, the mediators who were able to communicate between public health, government responses, and the community at large were religious leaders. And they were a particular type of religious leaders. In Freetown, at least, they were religious leaders, both Christian and Muslim, who had worked for a number of years on addressing stigma and the meaning and the ambivalent meaning related to health and illness in relation to HIV. And they provided this kind of cultural bridge for the communication of the importance of the health response, of the public health response, in the context of a religious community and of a religious tradition. They provided that middle ground. A, a final, finally, to close, a, sing, a similar example um, was found um, most recently in regard to um, a response, again, in Sierra Leone um, of um, providing prevention information in regard to the possibility for uh, transmitting Ebola after one is recovered from symptomology through infected semen, through sex, and that the um, 
programs that provided information about um, the, the danger of transmission to, um, between husband and wife in the context of uh, sexual intercourse were religious leaders who had been trained to advocate for the idea that women have the agency to make decisions for themselves related to sexual activity and sexual um, choice um, and um, bringing both Christian and Muslim lay leaders together to call men to accept women's right to make those decisions as people of faith. It was those programs that were most effective at providing a framework, according to the World Health Organization, I was just in a meeting in Italy talking about this last week, um, for, for that to be the framework in which um, health education related to the transmission um, for infection through um, sexual contact, they were the ones who were most effective at making that, that um, uh, getting that information across. That question of ambivalence, the question between risk and um, 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 reality of, of, of the possibility of infection, is found not only in regard to programs at the ground level, it's part of the dynamics of our public health responses in general, I would say, and that religion may be a good place for us to look for ways in which we can negotiate the question of meaning when that question isn't so clear. Thank you so much. And finally, to round off the round table is uh, Professor Elias Bongba, who is the Harry and Hazel Chavon Chair in Christian Theology and professor of religion at Rice University in Houston. Professor Bongba has authored three books, including Facing a Pandemic, The African Church and the Crisis of AIDS, The Dialectics of Transformation in Africa, and African Witchcraft and Otherness, a Philosophical and Theological Critique of Intersubjective Relations. He is also the editor of the Wiley Blackwell Companion to African Religions. Professor Bongba. When we got here, we sort of made a decision that I should come and wrap up things here I mean, I wish I brought the beer, and I would have said uh, it's time to open the beer because uh, you, you have had uh, very excellent presentations on what is going on. But in order to wrap up, I need to just make some very broad remarks uh, without showing you slides or anything, uh, but to place those comments on the table in light of what we have seen from this uh, epidemic. I think uh, it, it is not overstating it to say, at least when we think of the Ebola virus, uh, especially coming at a time when the HIV-AIDS pandemic has not gone away, that uh, the, the comparison between the two is mind-boggling. Uh, HIV-AIDS uh, is uh, something that develops very slowly, uh, but now health experts tell us that there is a possibility that somebody can live a long, fruitful life, whereas Ebola comes and within a very short time, the results are very catastrophic. Uh, it has left untold pain in the region. Uh, it has compromised an already overtaxed uh, disease burden in those countries. It has overtaxed the infrastructure and even within West Africa, significantly compromise other issues not directly re related to disease but to conflict 
uh, for instance, a lot of the internally displaced people and cross-border people who had migrated or moved into other countries as refugees are stuck and cannot go back, especially to Côte d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast because of the Ebola outbreak. It is a very, very difficult disease, and uh, that region now faces enormous consequences, including uh, cross-border relationships uh, that has resulted from this late, latest outbreak. Uh, regionally, I think the international, the, the, the countries in that country have actually, in that region have really struggled, and uh, I need not uh, say much about that. But internationally, the world, both the World Health Organizations, our colleagues here uh, at the Centers for Disease Control and here at Emory University uh, performed gallantly in trying to resolve this issue. I think uh, in addition to the praise, one could raise a number of questions. And uh, the questions here uh, deal with the kind of collaboration that goes on between these international organizations and the African governments who are supposed to be their partners. Uh, if you look at the statistics, I do not really know what the numbers are for the Ebola virus disease, but over 30 years of uh, HIV AIDS, uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars have been spent. There's a lot of NGO and FB, uh, faith-based organization work. Um, the, uh, it seems like the interaction between these international agencies and many African governments, whom one should say actually that should really bear the responsibility for dealing and addressing with these issues is not always very clear. There's a, a great connection between the ministers who serve African governments who readily talk about policy and policy, whether that policy is World Health Organization policy or whether it is uh, the latest documents from the Joint United Nations programs to combat HIV-AIDS or UN-AIDS, or whether that policy is uh, AU protocols and so forth. The ministers are able to recite it, they know. But those policies are generally not often linked to direct programmatic actions that, you know, can deal with the immediate effect of the problem they are facing or the long-term effects of it. And the reason I make that claim is just simply that if you look at uh, the struggle with 30 years of HIV-AIDS when uh, tens and hundreds of millions and you know, billions of dollars have been spent, uh, for example, in Cameroon, there has been very little infrastructure uh, done to improve the condition of the public health facilities. And the reason I say this is because if, the, if, though, if that infrastructure was put in place and functioning well, the bulk of the infection uh, with the Ebola virus disease uh, can actually be zeroed down for a very simplistic reason to sanitation and healthcare. The, the, all of the overall gear, everything that needs to go, the protective gear, these are things that one could have found on location. But uh, you, you, it's strange that uh, in 2014 and 15, 
Um, many public uh, institutions in Africa that deal with these things are not. And, and these are things that international organizations, whether it's the CDC, uh, they are expected to bring in time of a calamity. And so one begins to wonder, uh, how can there be a direct conversation and collaboration between international organizations and local governments that can put into effect uh, very effective programs and very effective means of dealing with this. And uh, I think the reason to make this claim is very simple. Nigeria had two cases. Uh, they were able to treat an Ebola uh, patient in Nigeria, and uh, that patient recovered. That is an indication that not every Ebola patient ought to be flown in very dramatic uh, scene to the United States. Uh, that is an indication that with the proper infrastructure, with the proper accounting or use of dollars that the international community has put into fighting pandemics in Africa, there are better ways of doing it. And one often wonders, uh, why can't be done? Why can't this be done? Of course, there are a number of reasons. One, the African governments don't want to be lectured at by the international organizations. And the international organizations, as long as they are able to do what they do, um, and nobody is going to push the envelope uh, any further. In between, you have the diehard professionals who will go, as it were, into the thick of the fight, who, when everybody else is running away, uh, packing their bags and traveling to Africa, packing their bags and going into the village to do the study. But the real question of what happens in the long run, I think that question has not been, been, been raised. And I, this is not to un undermine the effort of the international community, but it is just to really say that maybe we could go back and look at things that were said by people like Paul Farmer uh, about uh, the HIV pandemic when, when he emphasized uh, the geography and all of that is responsible to this. Could it be that the failure to discuss some kind of mechanism of accountability and the failure to forge a very strong collaborative, uh, collaborative arrangement which says, well, sure, if this is not done, then we don't uh, provide the dollars, uh, to at least maybe even stand firmly and face uh, those who are providing the, the, the mechanism that something better should be done. And I think it's that reason, this reason that some of us uh, who are Africans understand the debate between uh, Bill Gates and Dombisa Moyo about all of the aid uh, that people talk about. I think Dombisa Moyo is arguing like many other Africans that there are better ways and those better ways of sustainability should not be the responsibility of the NGOs or the CDC of the World Bank that the question of sustainability can be raised right at the root, at the location. And if you are hungry and I come to your house to give you a piece of bread today, I think at a certain point it is counterintuitive for you to ask me, okay, you're giving me a piece of bread today, what am I going to eat tomorrow, what am I going to, or will you continue to give me that? These are hard choices, and I think that the international aid organization, as great and as wonderful as they have been, there is something seriously lacking. There is a conversation that needs to be said. I think having said that, uh, I didn't come here to lecture to you, but at least let you know how some of us see these things. I need to make only two other remarks. One about the risk that John just mentioned. Uh, let me ask you a question. During that uh, period, Mr. Taylor traveled from Liberia 
to Lagos, Nigeria, and was to continue to Port Harcourt. Uh, the Nigerian physicians refused that he could not go. And he remained and would die, and during that time infected two people. And then, of course, there's the case of Mr. Duncan. I raised this question first in my house. Everybody shouted me down. But the question was, even what Ellen presented to us at the very beginning, the whole question of quarantine, if you look at it as not only a medical philosophy, but a very practical device, which allows that at some point, a state that is constituted a state, if we can follow uh, Weber here as a constituted authority that can use legitimate force, that can actually implement regulations that bars movement. What do we learn from those two cases? There's a lot written in medical ethics about uh, patient rights, a lot written in medical ethics about the rules of engagement, the ethics that physicians and nurses should carry out. I wonder if this case demonstrates that we have failed in many ways to train and talk to people in our communities about the responsibility of a patient. Of course, Mr. Duncan, I can understand. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't have been so bold when I first came to the United States in 1985 to walk into the hospital and say, I need this, or I am. So I would have done the same thing. I probably would have come, gone into the hospital, listened to what the nurse told me, and gone home. But the question is at the very source, what can be done more so that a quarantine or like the case in Sierra Leone which you point out is actually effective because it is going to slow down infections. It is going to help people stay away from danger. I think this is something about, uh, in addition to the rights of patients, that we need a lot more work to do about the responsibility. And this sounds unfair if you look at it, but if you look at the implications, the implications of uh, that kind of movement when the government has said, look, stay in one place. Um, you, you look at the implications of, of what that travel uh, implied. I think it is very difficult. I'm not trying to blame any of these two patients, but I think my fundamental question here is, how can we better educate patients to know that in times of pandemics like this, uh, there are better ways of controlling movement and that control of movement is not a fundamental violation of somebody's rights? My last comment here has to do with religion. John mentioned that uh, a quarantine was to cover everything. If it covers everything, it should affect religion. I see no reason why uh, ministers of religion or imams should complain at a time of crisis that religion or the practice of religion is very important. I don't want to draw the distinction or the close connection which I think HIV AIDS has helped us recover that religion plays a fundamental role in public health. But I think there are times when we should also realize that in some African communities, the need might be there to push the boundaries and say, look, we live in a context where scientific approaches probably provide us greater insight 
into what is going on. In a context where miracles, in a context where uh, divine healing is stressed, I think we need to sometimes have a conversation about the basic facts of science. I am not arguing that science is not arrogant. Science is actually quite arrogant. But we also know that there's something quite real about it. Even when we talk of medicine, uh, we talk of medicine, medicine works because something is identified. What those products do, just the same like indigenous healing herbs and so forth did, uh, are very real things. And in science, we are able to study them and know them better. And so we need to be able to push that aspect of science in our communities and make sure that the general education of it especially, and this appeal more to religious leaders. I think the irony here is that uh, faith-based organizations, CHAC, the Christian Health Association of Africa, uh, the Ecumenical Pharmaceutical Network that I'm familiar with, uh, the work they do all over Africa, are very scientifically based organizations, even though they serve in the name of faith and love. But they promote a very, uh, you know, biomedical perspective. And I, I think we uh, need to find new ways in our communities to educate people about what to know about science, the limits of science, the limits of religion, and it seems that in most African con countries, we have failed to see the limits of religion, even as much as we are in celebration, I for one, the work that uh, the Christian organizations have done throughout uh, Africa. I think we, in the African context, um, we face a long road. And like the previous speakers have said, it's a road that we all have to travel together both as those who study religion and those who lead religious communities. Uh, we are not out of the woods. It's going to take a very consistent uh, effort. But the bulk of my remarks here, I think, point to the responsibility that I think that is lacking in the African context. And uh, maybe one way of helping the African context move towards that is to get to a point where one thing you hear at a conference like this, whether it's African Studies Association or the American Academy of Religion, is not that uh, neoliberal policies are the problem. Uh, Emory University, CDC, is able to do all of these things. CDC is government-funded, but Emory University, the Rawlings schools, all depend on money that has been raised by a market economy. And sometimes I wonder if our critique of neoliberalism, our critique of markets and capitalism uh, helps promote a dogmatic slumber or an economic slumber in African governments. Uh, because I think part of the problem with sustainability there is just that there is really nothing the African governments are really trying hard. But the economic system, which as academics we are all the time bashing, all the time thinking uh, it's the wrong way, I think is making that kind of sustainability that we are looking for very, very difficult in that context. Uh, as a scholar of religion, I've never attended a UN AIDS meeting because who's going to pay for me to go and pay an $800 registration fee to attend a UN AIDS conference? 
but for that uh, kind of organization, it is possible. For African governments, it is very difficult. And uh, maybe there needs to be a very frank conversation to promote some kind of sustainability in the African context. Thank you. So thank you very much for all your presentations. And in the time we have left, which is a little over a half hour, <clears throat> we hope you have some questions or some points of discussion to raise. And I know Dr. Eidler has a point to make about the politics of Ebola as well. Um, can I take some questions? Uh, Teresia, you had your hand up. And can you please introduce yourselves also? Oh, sure, go ahead. There is a microphone there. We may as well make use of it. Thank you very much. Uh, Tracia Hinga, Santa Clara University from Kenya. And I uh, want to appreciate the, uh, the approach that looks at the relationship between religion and health. Um, John's presentation reminded me about the whole question of death and meaning, the meaning of death in contexts like this. Reminded me of what happened in Haiti. Uh, during the earthquake, when uh, the earthquake happened, the inclination was like, let's just like, they are down there, let's just bulldoze everything over them. Um, I think it's only Brazil that uh, took that whole question of meaning, of burial and so forth, and intervened uh, to provide some modicum of dignified burial for the victims of the earthquake. Um, the question I have has to do with um, uh, are we any, red, any more ready for an epidemic like, the, uh, like this than we were uh, three years ago? In other words, we were caught kind of unawares. The research and into the uh, antidote was very you know, minimal. Remember, there was a story of somebody who had a little vial of something that they were debating whether to give it to, how to split it between three people. What progress, if any, has, has been made? And what has, uh, the whole question of ethics of research, um, scientific research, some diseases tend to, to, to be given more attention in terms of, um, because I guess they, I don't know. Uh, so wh why is the responsibility for the research uh, community to, to do it in a prophylactic way rather than wait till there's a crisis like this? Thank you. Uh, can we have uh, another say? Yes, please. Uh, go. Oh, okay. And we'll take maybe uh, four questions and then let the panel have a chance to respond. Hi, I'm Corey Norman. I teach at UW-Madison where I work with a great uh, group of public health people, but um, we're just trying to get this conversation about religious studies and public health going. And, and something, while I, you know, I don't want to denigrate the, the courage and um, the hard work and the wonderful things that people have talked about and have said here about collaboration with faith communities and public health, I'm also deeply disturbed at the lack of attention to traditional religions. And uh, I also just wanted to point out, you know, this isn't the first chance we've had to work on this. I mean, anthropologists such as Barry Hewlett have uh, made the point that, you know, <laughs> we've seen this before uh, in Uganda, for instance. And we didn't learn the lessons uh, that that should have taught us about the importance of burial 
practices. About, yes, we're looking at the deaths of individuals, but also I think we need to take into account the death of culture. When we talk about, um, you know, I, I, I'm just really astounded, um, I guess, in the public discussion of this as well, about uh, the lack of attention to what it means, uh, what a body means in a traditional African context, what the connection to spirit means between people across uh, divides of what might, we might consider material and spiritual. And I think as religious studies people, one of the things that we can bring to this is we can keep raising these questions. And if people want to tell us we're naive or these are not the most important things, well, we're the people who still need to raise them. And I just sort of want to hear some, um, some comments about um, how we incorporate uh, these things. It's one thing to talk about Christianity and Islam, and, and in a way those are contested categories, I think, with African traditional religions. It's very simplistic to talk about these as quite distinct things in some African cultures. And I, I just sort of want to hear a more, um, I guess, sophisticated attention to uh, some of the complexities of, um, of those kinds of things. Anyway, sorry that's kind of weird, but um, you guys make it better. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name is Robert Baum. I teach at Dartmouth College in African Studies and Religion, and I'm part of a medical humanities group that involves humanities people, anthropologists, and medical school people at Dartmouth. Um, and I do my field work in the northern limits of the Upper Guinea region. Um, Liberia and Sierra Leone would represent the southern edge of that. I actually shared exactly, my comments are very similar to my, my predecessor who just spoke. Um, this is an area where the Poro Society, which is a men's secret society, and the Sunday Society, which is a women's secret society, are very, very active. And it doesn't matter whether you identify publicly as Muslim or Christian. These are very important societies that handle all of the life transitions, including that of death. And to talk about Christianity and Islam as if they're the only religions in the region is to do exactly what Christian and Muslim leaders want you to think. That is, that they speak for the entire community. They don't. And these practices of, of, of about burial touch on very important issues, not just about God, but also about ancestors. Because it's important how you're buried, where you're buried, where people can, can offer their respect to you as an ancestor. I remember vividly when, in Senegal where I work when the, 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 the ferry boat, the Jola, sank with hundreds of people who died at sea and their bodies were never recovered. And people felt that they were, they were at a loss. They didn't know how to, to mourn their dead because there was no place of burial. By the way, this is also true in Islam. There are people who are very fearful of cremation because the state of your body at death and at burial reflects what your body will be like at the end of days. So I would urge you both to complicate the religious environment where people are Christian, Muslim, and indigenous simultaneously and without contradiction within their own religious systems as opposed to the exclusivism of the West, and also to complicate even the category of Islam, which is not quite nearly as simple and permeable as possible. You may have covered some of this. I came late, but anyway, I, I just wanted to add my two cents. 
Thank you. Thank you. My name is David Addis. I'm at Emory University here in the Task Force of Global Health. So I'm on the public health uh, side of the, the fence here. John, I was struck by your uh, figures that you showed um, related to the expenditures. And in global health, we have this uh, self-proclaimed ideal of health for all. And yet the expenditures and how we get our funding uh, belies the fact that we're, we're far from that ideal. And I wonder what, and the, certainly that ideal is probably, um, has, has a lot to share with the, the uh, great religious traditions uh, of, of, um, of us all being uh, part of the same family. In, in terms of getting at that issue of equity, um, what are, is the potential for uh, religion and public health to work together? Thank you. Good afternoon. <clears throat> My name is Werner Kilber, Rice University. I'm a colleague of Elias Bomba, um, SBL side of biblical literature. My question concerns an aspect which uh, you did not touch on or discuss and perhaps it's not part of your project, but I think it's a very important aspect of the whole issue. And that is the role of the media. Even if you don't subscribe to McLuhan's notion of the <coughs> medium is the message, nonetheless we all know that the medium have the power in a way to shape perception and in a way to shape reality. reality so that the medium can very well have an overriding effect over the actual reality and become the new reality. And I wonder if any one of you would care to address the issue of what, in your view, the kind of role the medium, media played, the electronic media in particular, the tele, I'm thinking of television, played uh, in the case of the Ebola crisis. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take one more question, then we'll give the panel a chance to respond. Sorry, I'm sorry to add to this. I missed uh, half what was said, so <coughs> my comment may not be. Huh? My, oh, my name is Bella Mukonyora, Zimbabwean, and I'm very interested in um, uh, what, what was going on. But anyway, um, I think a pandemic it's a pandemic, it catches its victim by surprise. I mean, even if one knows it's around, you, it, it does create a sense of desperation, and I think it explains a lot of how, even in the West, the disease was being handled in the media, but also in practice. But so, so, I, so it's not about Africans being responsible agents of their own, how to contain the disease, because there's no time for that. Uh, but anyway, uh, for, it's been now a few centuries since there has been a collision between African cultures and indigenous religions and westernization, colonial conquest and so on. And it is in between these two worlds that we have some of these problems that we have. And I do not believe Africans cannot distinguish between the sacred and the profane. I think they are... Perhaps there's a gap in terms of how we access the knowledge about African religions through its leaders, perhaps, or through its uh, rituals, perhaps. So we miss out some of the aspects that reflect 
that Africans do in fact distinguish between things that are religious and profane. Even in terms of African medicine, you have herbal medicines and you have um, somebody who might diagnose things in terms of divination. So I think, I, I think we just want to not oversimplify Africa given the complexity and the size of the continent and the problems that we really have to face head on uh, empirically. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway. That's it. Modernity hits, and it's already hit Africa, and people can distinguish between the sacred and the profane, and not everyone is just thinking in terms of religion. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Bella. <clears throat> okay, so can we hear from the panelists then? It's about 6.08. I'll uh, just review the questions, and if we could just get any of, any of your quick, rather uh, quick responses to them. First of all, are we any more ready for a similar epidemic than we were three years ago in terms of especially prophylaxis against a new one? Well, I, I can start out a, a little bit uh, answering that question. Um, uh, as, as I mentioned during my talk, um, you know, early on we, we found that we did not have a vaccine to prevent this particular virus. We didn't have uh, antibiotics that could, could kill the virus. and, and um, uh, both of those have been in, in development. Uh, there's uh, several vaccine studies uh, to prevent e Ebola that, that are, are ongoing. Um, the medications that, that we had uh, were only present in, in small numbers. They were experimental, so we didn't know whether they would work or not or whether they were safe. Uh, so th there were instances where um, a physician would choose to give a, a medication to an Ebola patient, uh, realizing that there might be some risk or it might not work at all, but it, it was worth a try. But those were only present in small numbers. So there have been uh, ongoing studies of, of those medications, uh, as well as uh, efforts to, to build the infrastructure that we know isn't there. And I think that that's something that we, we work on continuously at, at CDC to, to work with countries to, to hopefully develop that. Um, perhaps another way to, to look at that question of whether we are more prepared now than we were a few years ago is to look at the, the other issues that I raised uh, dealing with how people respond in terms of stigma and prejudice and the things that, you know, th those types of things. Are we any, any better off uh, today than we were um, a year ago or at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic or, or that type of thing? And I'll, I'll just put that question back to you. You know, how, how are we, um, at, some of you may know I'm, I'm a physician during the day. Um, I also have a seminary background, and so I'm a kind of a colleague with, with you all. How are we at, at um, uh, teaching people about stigma, about prejudice, about things like that, and, and, and how we uh, interact with one another? Are we making progress in those, those areas? Because that's an important part of response as well, and we need to be growing in, in that way too. Well, can we segue then into the uh, Corey Norman's question about uh, the conversation between religion and public health in terms of the place of culture then, and uh, how those dynamics are often occluded or simplified, and how they might actually help public health? You know, I, I think from my perspective, uh, nobody undermines um, the importance of indigenous religions, or nobody undermines the importance of, uh, say, something like uh, divination as a diagnostic tool. Uh, I, I was recently at one of the witches' village in Ghana, and the Methodist pastors with whom I was kept calling the local religious leader a fetish priest, a fetish priest. 
I was a guest and I kept it for several days. Finally, at the last day, I just burst out and I said, well, you know, why are you, call, why are you calling him a fetish priest? And he went on and at some point I said, look, this man is doing more for the 2,000 women who have been condemned as witches and brought to this place than all of the government of Ghana, than everybody, because he is the one that uh, stabilizes them, does indigenous religious tra- uh, practices, and calms them down and provides them a safe place to stay. So uh, I don't think um, if it did not come out, if we did not specifically signal it, I don't think that one is ignoring ind- indigenous religious beliefs. Uh, but, you know, my, my comments are geared more towards uh, public policy, which, which I think has been a gross failure. And those are things that are very hard to say because it seems like you're bad-mouthing your own, like my own country, Cameroon. Uh, but the facts are there. Uh, or even the question of preparedness, uh, I think I can't answer that question because I'm not trained medically. But given what I have said, I think I can say, no, we're not. We are not. Or the question that my friend Bella raises about the distinctions between the sacred and the profane, and that all decisions are not really made based on the sacred, uh, I think my point here is simply that uh, when you have difficulties challenging quarantine or trying to break quarantine, you, are, you have that coming from religious people who cannot suspend religion at a time of an emergency when that suspension probably could have saved more lives. That, that's just the concern I am referring to, but not referring to the fact that I, we can lump all Africans together. I think there's enormous sophistication in Africa. Uh, that is why the faith-based organizations, uh, the CHAC, the Christian Health Association Platform of Africa, the, all the hospitals that they are affiliated with throughout the continent do very much biomedical services on much, much, much less than the public sector does. And so, I mean, I'm afraid I would say, no, we are not actually better prepared to handle another one should it break out simply because of the public sector infrastructure that deals with these things in Africa. But but if if I may, um, to echo uh, the remarks of two of the questioners, the categories of Islam, Christianity, and indigenous religions themselves are inadequate. I think we would all agree for sure. the reality on the ground. Sure. And if those categories are the ones by which, to get to John's point about meaning and to Ellen's point about um, you know, simple insights that open up uh, a key to solving an epidemic, uh, like cutting the handle off of the water pump, for instance, if, if these are the operative concepts by which we're approaching the possibility of transmission, Muslim communities, indigenous communities, Christian communities, and if in fact Muslims and Christians do indigenous things in, in various contexts, then it seems to me that those concepts alone are not are going to hinder the public health effort. And I believe that's what was at the heart of those two questions. I would say, at least in my experience, that there are places in this intersection between religious studies and public health for raising the question, not so much for figuring out at least now a way forward, but that doesn't mean we can't raise the question. 
and that, that there are people on, on in the various kinds of disciplinary silos who will hear that question and recognize that it's an important one. It seems to me that part of what we're talking about here is who gets to have the power to make the meaning, right? And so in the public health response to Ebola, I mean, the cultural history of like the founding of the World Health Organization was kind of militantly secularist and, and that religion is a private act you do if you decide to do it, but it has no bearing. And pushing back against that is a first step. But the places where there's enough kind of social and political capital to push back, rightly or wrongly, and I'm not saying this excuses it, I'm just saying it's the reality of what it is in 2015, are through the categories of world religions. We can problematize that category and we can, we can problematize the idea that people don't live only as Christian or only as Muslim or only as traditionalist, that their lives are hybridities. I agree with that, but but getting the WHO to recognize that the protocols weren't working happened through the World Council of Churches, through Caritas, and through Islamic Relief. They happened through the entities and the agencies out of what's called in this kind of health and development sphere the faith-based sector by those who have enough agency and power to, to play the game. And that doesn't make it right, but that is the reality of bringing the question to the table. And now maybe it's that sets the place for people in religious studies to say, okay, this game's not set by these categories as much as we thought it was, or you thought it was, and to problematize that a little bit, or, or a lot. Um, but I do think it's a question of politics as to who gets to set what counts as the real thing um, uh, and, and the category. Um, I just I think we need to remind ourselves that we still have the question of equity and media on mm -hmm. the table. Um, Rosalind, uh, I imagine you're going well, to. I just... to follow up. Yes, please. To this, uh, this is Rosalind Hackett, uh, Religious Studies and Anthropology, University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I was uh, going to press the the labeling or the categorizing question and the domination now globally uh, of, of faith-based organizations. I mean, faith is, when it comes down to it, if you look at the religious and cultural history of it, I mean, it's actually a, a, a Protestant uh, concept. So uh, I wanted to ask uh, Elias and John, uh, so how might you rethink, just as you've questioned the label of fetish priest because that's demonizing and, and uh, but how can you get um, indigenous religions better incorporated um, uh, or, or do, do is, does another label need to be created and then just as an add-on um, uh, our Department of Anthropology at the University of Tennessee uh, is renowned for its work in, forensic, in forensics. And you might just be interested to know that um, they have a, a project at the moment that concerns reburials in northern Uganda. And they are taking account of 
religion in ways that uh, uh, a lot of the forensic work before did not take account of religious needs, religious practices, etc. Partly because the pushback has come from the people themselves about whether in their community they want mass graves opened up and people reburied and how you so so I, listening to this conversation is sounding very familiar to what I've been hearing among students and colleagues about how to factor religion in um, into the conversation about you know forensics and reburials. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think let's hear a response to to that point uh, before we take the next question. Uh, you know I think. Let me also point out that indigenous religions don't lack the idea of quarantine. In my village, if someone committed suicide, especially if they hung on a tree, the, nobody went near that location. The whole village was told to stay away. Only ritual experts who would then go and perform rituals, uh, in some cases offer the sacrifice, prepare medications to give to everybody in the village who was not even at the site. So, you know, when we, when we talk or they talk about uh, burial and so forth, I, I don't think that anyone here condones the fact that when somebody passes away that they should not be given that minimum respect according to traditional local indigenous religious beliefs. I think that is a given. But I think the question here also is, at time of an emergency where the flutes and all of the other properties that uh, if you touch, you will become contaminated. It doesn't really matter which religion one uses. It is a basic fact. And that distinction that has to, has to be made, and what we are simply saying is people then should be arranged, those burials should be arranged in a proper way that would prevent the people from getting infected. It's not that we are prioritizing any other religion than other religions. Uh, I, I think that those religious traditions, those symbols, those rituals can still be carried out even if somebody does not touch the corpse or come like they do in my village and cry and fall on the corpse and so forth. I think that's, that's, that, that's all that is at stake here. Um, I've talked about faith-based organizations I think that because that's what I have studied the most. But that doesn't mean that indigenous religions don't have a role to play. In fact, the large majority of Cameroonians that I know, the first stop when somebody is ill is to consult an indigenous priest, to consult a diviner, to go to a herbalist. Uh, in, in my own case, even when I sent money for my mother who had dementia to go to the hospital, my father first went to a diviner consistently for about 15 years that my mother suffered with, with and you know I fought battles with him and it, but nobody no, nobody is ignoring that I think it's just that we raise this in the context of Ebola and we're not trying to wipe this away 
if it is quarantine, indigenous religions actually has the strictest rule of quarantine. Because in the case of somebody who, who, who hung himself or herself, if anybody in the village violated that, there were usually very strict uh, punishments for that. So I think that's as much as I'm going to say. Do any of, any of you have responses to that before we get quickly to the issues of equity in media and then take Mary Young Wessel's question? Um, I would just say really quickly that I think that I would say that it is still a contested issue. Just the fact that that longer standing religious or, or spiritual beliefs or practices um, that that I as someone trained in Western approaches to thinking about culture, mostly out of the Christian tradition with some comparative religion, um, I know I'm biased to see Christianity or to 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 use a Christian framework to make sense of what I see in front of me, um, either in this context or in other parts of the world where I go. And so your criticism is, is an important one and duly noted. At the same time, if people themselves don't live out their lives in practice according to the categories that have been set up by Western approaches to either the scholarship or this idea of engaging the faith-based sector, I wonder if there may be ways that in local practices in a community, when a, a health team that's using a protocol that's relying on the categories and has three pages to talk about a Christian burial and five pages to talk about a Muslim burial, that what happens at the level of the local family and the local community is much more organic and less categorized than the health team even recognizes and can see. Um, and that doesn't mean so everything's hunky-dory and we don't continue to raise these questions. It is to say that people develop strategies to get through the categories and who gets to set the, the categories and to put them in place. They always have, and they'll do that at, at this point as well. Um, and that's where we are right now. And that's a step forward from where we were a year ago. And I, I don't mean to say so we just say everything's great and we pack up and go home, but, but we have to raise these questions in the context of understanding where we've been and where we might be going. And, and, isn't, and isn't that one of the moments where meaning and power become one and the same, too, where the categories are dictated by, by Western perceptions? Uh, did, did you want to say something? Uh, one on? sentence, and that is a thank you to Emmanuel Larte from Candler School of Theology, who was the one who suggested that we have African traditional religious practice in the first set of practices. So one of those chapters is on puberty religions in Ghana. Thank you. Mary? Or I'm, so, I'm okay. sorry, sorry. Let's just quickly get to the issues of equity in media. I'm sorry. Can we have some of your responses about that? In other words, if if the situation is so unequal, if infrastructures, maybe there are some contributions made, but they never seem to catch up. If the discrepancies that you talked about, John, are so different, then um, how do you achieve that equity? And what has been the role of the media in shaping the course of the epidemic? I, I, I'm not wise enough, David, to have to know what equity a more equitable approach looks like. I know that I can start by acknowledging that it's inequitable and I that I benefit, materially benefit from the inequity. You know, the three of the four people that were treated at Emory and in that almost $3 million cost were people who were in West Africa, I think deeply committed to work, to work where they wanted to live out in daily practice as individuals 
this idea of being part of the community and seeing the people that they were working alongside of as colleagues and friends, and this was their community. And what I'm about to say, I don't blame them in any way, shape, or form. If I had been in their shoes, I would have done the same thing. But when an epidemic hit that threatened their life, they had the material means to be evacuated and to be sent to a hospital where they could have access to a million dollars worth of medical care. And that's the reality of economics and politics in 2015 in the world. And to challenge you a little bit, Elias, I think that's why us raising questions about market economies is an important thing for us to at least raise a question about, that neoliberalism does have an impact and an effect. So I don't know what, how we overcome that as much as to say it is on the table, and it's on the table in our global health and development enterprise, and it's on the table in our faith-based response in that context as well. And we just need to be honest about that. That's not all we need to do, but that's a starting point. I mean, I disagree, but <laughs> that's, I, think, I think the point is well taken. And the issue of media, the role that the media has played. Uh, I, I think or, the role of the media, I haven't been to Cameroon in the last two years, but I know that um, uh, radio and television and the proliferation of new broadcast media, media in Cameroon, a lot has been done to try to educate people on public health and a lot of pamphlets, a lot of billboards, and and so forth. Uh, I think uh, I can't speak about the use of social media in Cameroon now. It's what I really need to be there to see. But I know also that the cell phone revolution in Africa has changed a lot of things. And the fact that uh, somebody in a small village somewhere can take a cell phone and call you in the U.S., and tell you of a problem and then you can call a doctor somewhere or you can call a relative somewhere and that, that ha uh, they get help for them is, is an indication that uh, I think uh, the extent to which both the broadcast uh, media and private television stations and radio stations and personal telephones uh, can be worked out to go a long way uh, it shows that those things still need to be exploited. To what extent that is happening, I cannot speak. Uh, again, unfortunately, uh, the ones that I know, like organizations like CHAC and the Ecumenical Pharmaceutical Network, uh, they have charts, they have uh, brochures that they have printed that they mass uh, mail to people, they distribute through all their agencies as attempts to try to educate people on all of these. Uh, can it be creative and can it be done in a different way? Yes, I think so. Uh, but uh, I haven't been back in Cameroon that I know well in two years to speak with any authority. But the media is going to be a key moving forward, both in terms of education and information about the location where the uh, where there might be, you know, places where people need to be aware to stay away from or go and all of that, that kind of public education, the, the role of the media remains crucial. Scott, did you? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to address another aspect of the media then, and that's the 24-hour the, the news cycle and the role that it had in this. And, and, and if you remember from uh, last year in, in July when the cases really started to take off, the epidemic started to take off, and even uh, the news and the public interest, there just really wasn't that 
much interest, even though there were large numbers of deaths in West Africa, but people weren't interested. There really wasn't much of a story there for, at least for many of the, the large news uh, stations. Even when CDC published the estimates that the epidemic could could uh, cause a huge number of deaths, and I was a, a co-author on that paper, and initially there wasn't a whole lot of interest by the media in that. And when we saw kind of the media frenzy was when the Liberian gentleman was in Dallas and media descended on that situation. And I can tell you by working with his immediate family and contacts, uh, many of them feared for their own security because uh, the media were hounding them. They, they couldn't open their, their curtains, their window, because and they couldn't walk outside. I think that... Um, uh, there's a there's a tendency within the 24-hour news cycle to want to create a kind of a sensationalism. And um, we've seen that uh, even when they would present news stories, they would touch on the facts and the science, but it would be kind of framed in this sensationalistic kind of thing that contributed to to the fear and the misinformation, even though the... the, the Perhaps the science was in there, but it was it was in this packaging of you know wanting to stir up uh, more uh, more fear, a better story to to listen to, and so um, you know I, I would encourage you as as all educated people, academics, uh, you know when when you hear that you know really uh, step back and say well what's the what's the true story here is you know what what do we actually know about this and if you have um, colleagues who are in the medical field or public health that you can reach out to and say, well, help me to understand, you know, what, what is the truth here versus what is kind of being sensationalized in this situation? And then uh, when you understand that, be able to, to communicate that back to your, your uh, people who trust you, who listen to you uh, because you are a, a, a leader, you can help to uh, dissuade some of those fears and some of that misinformation that, that goes around uh, during these uh, epidemics. Well, I will let Mary Nyangweso um, ask a final question, and I just I would like to follow finally that up with a, just a brief thought about how we can continue this conversation because I I really think Corey's frustration, uh, Robert Baum's question about these categories, Rosalind's uh, follow up with that, Bella's concern about you know the swiftness of of the appearance of the epidemic, people are caught by surprise, putting ourselves in the shoes of people in those positions operating from different categories. These are things we can't resolve tonight, but they are clear. Clearly, things uh, that are causing a little bit of t productive tension, I think, and that I would hope we can find some way uh, to continue that conversation, especially because, last, last point, uh, because I think the CDC is very open to working with anthropologists. Of course, Robert Hahn being an anthropologist, others at the CDC, but, and I'm an anthropologist myself, but when it comes to religion scholars, I don't see too many conversations, or at least that I, that I don't know of them, perhaps, between uh, public health and scholars of religion. Anyway, Mary. Yeah, um, the, point, the question I wanted to ask, I think has been alluded to. Um, the, I was going to comment on the politics. You men talked about politics, economics, and all these other factors in play. And uh, I was thinking the only fatal case in the US was this African Liberian guy. Uh, and uh, one of the controversies surrounding that case was the fact that it was mishandled. And I don't know whether the CDC has, has, uh, has a plan that uh, in place to make sure that such a situation doesn't happen again. And of course, the politics has to do with the, this was an African, uh, but in, in the case of the other uh, uh, cases, somehow they were taken care of. So is the CDC or the World Health Organization prepared so that uh, next time we don't have this 
playing in the media as well. Can we let Ellen respond to that first since she had uh, something to say about politics that you know earlier in the talk if you if you'd like to. Um, I think my politics went in a okay. different direction. Okay. Okay, sure. Um, just wanted to give you the option. Please whoever would like to respond. Uh, yeah, so I, I will uh, mention a, a little bit about the uh, how we have responded to um, the, the situation that happened with the li Liberian gentleman in Dallas. And uh, we have recognized that uh, in the U.S., uh, a sick individual with Ebola or, or any, any infectious disease could present to any uh, clinic, any emergency department. And so they need to be able to uh, quickly recognize that it could be some dangerous disease like Ebola, but then they need to be able to uh, refer to a specialized hospital. So we've set up those hospitals in uh, around the U.S. that are specially trained, um, uh, as well as being able to test quickly to see if this is, uh, in fact, Ebola. Is it some other cause like malaria or some other treatable disease to get that individual the treatment they need and not only just rule out this disease that we're worried about, but to get them into the right uh, uh, point of care. So I think that... Um, uh, in, in that sense, a, a lot has been done to, to shore up our, our ability to, to respond to cases when, they're, when they present, when they're detected. Any further responses? Um, I was debating whether I say this, but what the hell. Um, uh, I also think that, that one of the questions about that is also a political one in the United States, in the context of the United States, and that is also what happens when a brown-skinned man goes into a hospital in the United States and what counts for the ways that the system provides services to him? And I, again, I'm not talking about any one doctor in that instance, and I'm certainly not talking about the CDC and the protocol that you just described, Scott. I'm just talking about the inequity related to health access that African-Americans in this country face, and I wonder if this African visitor <coughs> found himself in a system where inequities are part of the structure of the system, and that I'm not sure it's simply coincidence that the skin color of everyone who survived and had access to an extraordinary level of care was my skin color. I, I, I just think that's something <coughs> we need to ask. Well, any final thoughts on how uh, how this conversation might continue and how some of these... Uh, to go back to Corey's point, I agree with her. When there's a conversation about concerns over public health, when somebody is burying a dead relative, for instance, the point of view, and I, I understand uh, a, a counterpoint that's been raised, but the point of view that always takes precedence, precedence is the sort of biomedical public health point of view. When in fact, one has to imagine the situation where somebody in a situation of burial is fully aware of the risk that's being taken. I think you were kind of getting at this, John, in your talk. Is fully aware of the consequences, the potentially deadly consequences, and goes ahead with that act of burial anyway because the public health biomedical perspective is not the most important one. And that's a moral choice. may not seem moral to us, but it's a moral choice in that context. And I wonder how to you know, further talk about this kind of, of issue, and if, it's, if any of you even think it's useful talking further about it. I'd like to talk more about it. Not tonight, but... <laughs> yes, yes. But how, how, can we, how can we do that in what kind of context? How does that 
conversation continue? Does anybody have any thoughts? Um, we we sponsor public lectures and events, both the Interfaith Health Program and the Religion and Public Health Collaborative. That in, would include religious studies scholars and anthropologists um, as p- part of looking at any variety of public health issues and questions. Um, our program, the Interfaith Health Program, also receives has received for various years funding from U.S. governmental programs to convene meetings in, uh, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa um, uh, on these kinds of questions at the intersection. I will say that the way that gets framed out of public health is very positivistic, and you know, it's the categories that you can count and measure are the categories that are going to drive the agenda. But in that, there's a recognition, and part of the paradigm is that there are elements of religion in relation to public health that are tangible and less tangible, and that those less tangible elements may not fit the categories of a public health response, but public health recognizes that they have an impact and they're interested in that kind of conversation. I think we have to push that agenda, but I think it's it's there, and we've been involved in in those partnerships. And then in, at Emory, we have interdisciplinary uh, programs three or four times a semester. So, so I could put in a plug, uh, Jenny Trinitapoli, author of Religion and AIDS in Africa, which is one of the slides I didn't quite get to, but it's a very, really excellent book uh, based on the Malawi Religion Project. Uh, we'll be at Emory for um, two days, February 18th and 19th. She'll be doing a public lecture and a workshop the next day at the Center for Ethics. So if you get on our list. If you go to the Religion and Public Health Collaborative, you can write in and get on the list for announcements and find out more details about that. If I can add, my view is that uh, this question is actually much more broad than the question of burying the dead. You have, you, you have to factor in large communities of northern Nigeria receiving, refusing that their children will not be vaccinated. You have to factor in the fact that large uh, sector of uh, Christians in Botswana and Malawi rejected certain vaccines until it was imposed by the state. You have to also factor in the fact that a large number of ministers uh, and uh, Christian leaders and indigenous religious leaders in Africa for over 30 years of fighting the HIV pandemic have fetishized the condom and refuse that people cannot absolutely. So we are talking about a lot of broad categories that uh, if we if we factor in on the question of uh, how somebody is buried when they are dead, I think we seem to be missing the boat here. Well, I think um, with that, it's uh, 6.44. We are actually well beyond our time, and I think we're going to have to bring it to a close and thank um, Dr. Ellen Eidler, Dr. Scott Ibanez, uh, Professor John Blevins, and Professor Elias Bongba for their participation here today. Thank you for coming.